This is the Talk Editions podcast, episode 39, with Kamala Shankaram. I got on a Zoom call to speak with Kamala about two site-specific works she's created in recent years. The Buried Brook, a sound walk along a literal buried brook in the Bronx, and The Last Stand, an opera about trees that unfolds at a pace a tree might understand. This is the second in a series of episodes about performing artists who engage with and respond to their physical environment. We're releasing these episodes alongside our year-end fundraiser, so if you like the podcast, if you believe in what Talk does, click on the fundraiser link in our show notes or head over to talkensemble.com. Without further ado, here's the conversation between me, Charlotte, vocalist of Talk, and Kamala Shankaram. Composer Kamala Shankaram has created operas as varied as Looking at You, a techno-noir featuring live data mining of the audience and a chorus of 25 singing tablet computers, and The Parksville Murders, the world's first virtual reality opera. Recent commissions include works for the Glimmerglass Festival, Washington National Opera, the Prototype Festival, and Creative Time, among others. As a biracial Indian American and trained sitarist, Kamala has also drawn on Indian classical music in many of her works, including Thumbprint, A Rose, Monkey and Francine in the City of Tigers, and The Jungle Book. Also an accomplished, friggin' badass performer, Kamala <laughs> hung in Anthony Braxton's Trillium E, Trillium J, and GTM Syntax 2017. Meredith Monk's Atlas with the LA Philharmonic, the Wooster Group's La Dudon, and the Prototype Festival's Thumbprint. Kamala is also the leader of Bombay Ricky, an operatic Bollywood surf ensemble whose accolades include two awards for Best Eclectic Album from the Independent Music Awards. And Dr. Shankaram holds a PhD from the New School and is currently a member of the composition faculties at the Manus College of Music and SUNY Purchase. Kamala, thank you so much for talking to me tonight. I'm excited to talk to you. So I thought of your work, The Buried Brook, because Talk has been talking about doing a, a series about music written for sort of natural environments, natural landscapes, and then in sort of catching up on what you've been up to lately online, I realized that you've written another site-specific work in 2021 called The Last Stand, which was sort of mounted in Prospect Park, right? Yes, yes. And I would love to just hear a little bit about that project first, because it sounded so cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that project came about after I read uh, Peter Volleben's book the hidden life of trees which talks about well it, it summarizes a lot of dr suzanne simard's research on how trees are connected to each other and share resources and can warn each other of dangers and it just it talks about trees as this sort of interestingly different kind of intelligence and you know, I, we are all aware of the climate disaster heading our way. And this has been something that's been present on my mind for, for most of my adult life. Um, this is like a little historical side note. My my one of my first jobs in high school was working for Calperg. Um, I used to volunteer for the Sierra Club. I've been an environmentalist for most of my life. And so 
you know, I just reading that book, it made me think, well, one of the things that I do or I'm interested in in making opera is in putting people inside the perspectives of other people who may be different from them. So, well, what if I was to do the same thing, but instead of another person, it's just another kind of life form, another kind of intelligence. So that's where the idea initially came from is, is can you create empathy for a non-human intelligence by using some of the things that we do in theater and in opera? So it was kind of this ambitious and also vague idea. Um, and I applied for Creative Times open call and I did not expect to, to be chosen for this because it's a major public art exhibition and I had never done anything like that before, but they ended up picking my piece. And so what that meant is I suddenly had access to all of these people that I would never have been able to talk to otherwise, including Dr. Suzanne Sumard. So uh, that process was just uh, many different conversations with people who study trees and asking them if I was going to make an opera for trees, what would music sound like for a tree? And so it evolved because when I when I first started out, I thought maybe I would try to do something that mimicked the mycorrhizal networks that allow trees to communicate. But in talking to all of these people, I realized that anything that I did would be imposing my sort of anthropocentric perspective on it. And that was not what I wanted to do. So this question then, the response that everyone gave me was, well, trees can perceive sound. So maybe the better way to think of it is, you know, what is consonance or dissonance for a tree rather than what is music for a tree? And happy sounds for trees, consonant sounds would be the sound of a healthy forest. So that that's really where those conversations went is that a, a tree is not an individual, a tree is part of an ecosystem. And that includes the fungi in the ground, the birds, everything around the tree. And so really, if you're going to create tree music, it should be the sound of that forest. And that that's what guided making that piece, which was similarly done with a lot of field recordings. Um, one of the people I talked to was Angie Patterson, who was the head of education at the Black Rock Forest near Cornwall. And she was amazing. She she took me there and she showed me this white oak tree that had been around during the Revolutionary War. The George Washington had marched past this tree. And so uh, that became the focal point for the piece is how has the world around this tree changed over time and how will it change projecting into the future? So the piece was 10 hours long because I was thinking about how long a tree's life is and the amount of time that an opera would take for a tree as compared to a human. And it worked out to be about 10 hours. Um, I structured it so that each year of the tree's life was two minutes of sound. And then I made the piece layering field recordings on top of each other. So all of the things that are found in the forest, including the birds and frogs, and but also how the landscape has changed. So if you come at eight in the morning, which is when the piece starts, you'll hear the pristine forest, which is the birds of frogs, uh, Lenape, 
and wolves which disappear because what happens after is the land around the tree is clear cut and becomes farmland so if you come towards mid-morning you'll hear farm animals <laughs> and then if you come back you'll start to hear the sounds of human industry entering the soundscape and trains and planes because cornwall is right by west point and then towards the end of the piece, you hear the projection into the future, which is increasingly shorter winters, invasive insects, and finally a catastrophic fire. Yeah, so, so that piece really was my first time making something that was only field recordings. The human voices are just speaking. They don't sing. The only singers are the birds and the frogs. Um, and it also laid the groundwork for the, the buried brook. Right. Yeah. And that piece, was it realized by um, speakers in the park? Is that true? Yes, it was an ambisonic sound installation. So there were 30 speakers surrounding the, we chose a mother tree to be the center of the installation. So from that tree, there is the, the star aria of the piece, which is a white-throated swallow that um, they make this really beautiful sound that has these triplets in it. It's do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-
like the trees that you pass on the sidewalk in New York, they're like hearing everything that's happening around. Yes. In some way it really feels, um, it's just wild to think about. So there's, there's a whole field of research on this also, like how plants perceive sound. Wow. Oh yeah. A new rabbit hole. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Well, speaking of rabbit holes, speaking of things that go under the ground, um, (laughs) the buried brook is a project that you somewhat recently completed, right? Where yes. Sound walk that goes along where Tibbetts Brook would be if it were above ground, but it's currently beneath the ground. Yeah, the the part of the Bronx that I live in is the Riverdale Kingsbridge neighborhood. And it used to be a marshland, it was a wetland. If you, if you go into Van Cortlandt Park, there's part of the park that is still wetland-ish. The whole, the whole neighborhood used to look like this. Um, but the Army Corps of Engineers, and I think it was 1912, they, they diverted this waterway into the sewer and filled in the land around. So like, if you're walking around Kingsbridge, you'll notice that there are all of these houses are kind of raised up and the driveways are below street level. And that's because this waterway is running under the street in the sewer system. But the problem with this is There's nowhere for the water to go because it was a marshland. And this is clean water that we are sending into our sewer system for no reason. So now when it rains, and again, it's becoming increasingly worse with climate change. uh, This is part of why there's a tendency for the highway to flood because there's nowhere for the water to go. So the Parks Department, after years of work by all of these different constituencies. The Parks Department is going to bring this brook back above ground, which is called daylighting. So they're daylighting the brook. Um, The timeline on that is pretty long, right? That's going to, it's a multi-year project, but they they also want to create a greenway to go along with it. Um, But one of the organizations that was involved in this advocating for daylighting is called City is Living Laboratory, which is a foundation started by the environmental artist Mary Miss. And I got involved with them because I ran into the director of the foundation at the farmer's market around the corner (laughs) from where I live. And she, you know, I just saw this table, they were talking about art and environmentalism, and I had just finished working on the last stand. So I went over to her and I was like, this is really interesting. This is my neighborhood. Um, I would love to know more about what you're doing. And then we got to talking and she had seen my piece in Prospect Park and they were looking for people who lived in the Bronx to make work related to this project that they were working on and so I ended up being one of the artists that they commissioned. So so that must have been 2021 that you met them and started thinking about this? This was like maybe tail end of 2021, beginning of 2022. The last stand was in the park um, September to October of 2021 so it would have been after that. And in this piece you use a lot of field recordings as well, right? How would you say The Last Stand sort of influenced The Buried Brook? Well, what's interesting is that I, I've i used a lot of found sounds, mostly in the 
more chamber work that I've done some to some degree in the operas that I've done but um you know a lot of theaters especially opera houses are not really equipped to play electronics Mm -hmm. um and then there's the whole issue of amplification and miking and all of that so um I had kind of moved away from from that but then I found myself slowly bringing that back into my practice um Looking at you, which was the last opera that I had in New York City, had a lot of found sounds in it also, like, but they were more industrial sounds like satellites and dying computer hard drives and and that kind of thing, because it's a show about surveillance, capitalism and algorithms. So I... I had done some of this, but I hadn't really done field recording out in nature. And I found that I really liked it working on The Last Stand, just going and being in the forest for hours and letting the microphone pick up what it was going to pick up. It was really, it was a beautiful process. And and it's like plunking away on a computer keyboard. Exactly. Or being stuck in your apartment all day while you're trying to make yourself think of something. Instead, you just let the sound come to you. And then, you know, I, I didn't, but that process, I didn't, I didn't pitch shift anything. I just listened to what it was and layered it accordingly. So it's sort of like bringing out the, the things that you hear and maybe, highlighting them in some way, but not changing them, letting them be what they are. Did your relationship with the brook change in any way, sort of like how your understanding of trees changed through the process of making uh, The Last Stand? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know what daylighting was when I started (laughs) this project. And I also didn't know so much about the history of this neighborhood. Um, I know I had an awareness that the Dutch had colonized it because of some of the names around here, like Spiten Devil is spitting devil in Dutch. Um, but I didn't know, I didn't know that it was marshland. I didn't know, I didn't know the impact that these decisions that we've made around concrete and how there's nothing, there's no catchment, right? There's nowhere for the water to go. Um, and and altering the natural topography of the landscape, we have done things to make it less habitable. Like there were people here before the Dutch. The Lenape were here before the Dutch and they were fine. It was when we decided to cover everything over with concrete that we started having these flooding problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Speaking of the Lenape, you have Lenape voices at least in both pieces right is that the same? yes it is it is and i so this is uh nicole picor who is a teacher and i guess i would say preservationist also and um a translator of Mansi lenape and she she's part of the lenape nation in wisconsin and i met her when i was working on the last stand um because it was a historic piece i just felt that i you know they, the lenape needed to be present because they were here you know and so because I was working with creative time, I said this to them and they were like, great, we will find you someone who speaks a Lenape language and, and you can talk with them about what you want to do. So they put me in touch with Nicole and she was amazing. And she made this really beautiful 
blessing uh, for the last stand. So then when this project came up and I thought, well, I really need to have Lenape in this also. I just went to her and I said, you know, I'm making this other piece. It's also a historical piece. It's about water. If there's any text or anything that you want to contribute, you know, that would be really great. Um, and of course, you know, I, I paid her and credited her and, and everything. Like she's she's an integral part of the piece. But what I, I wasn't expecting is that she she went even further in, and she brought her daughter and um, they just happened to be in New Jersey at the Muncie Three Sisters farm. So I drove out there with my microphone and, you know, I was like, OK, great. Uh, um, I would love to hear whatever you want to share. And they shared this song and the song well, first of all, uh, Johnny Yakuha, who is Nicole's daughter, has a really beautiful voice and she sings it. And it's this like perfectly tuned thing. Like I didn't give them a pitch or anything. She just she just sang it. And, um, you know, and so I I just thought, well, this is so beautiful. I think that it's going to change how I'm doing this. I want to make the whole thing kind of be about the song instead of the text being kind of like a part of the soundscape like it was in the last end. And so it's, it's sort of the focal point. Wow. Beautiful. And what's the song about? It's about giving thanks to the water. So I also, I asked Nicole if I could use a couple of the words to be the background voices for the, the rest of the soundscape, right? So B is water and Nibi is of the water. Yeah. I noticed I haven't been able to actually do, oh, I don't know if we've mentioned, so in contrast to The Last Stand, The Buried Brook is a sound walk that people can listen to via an app called The Buried Brook. Yes, yeah. So I haven't been to the site yet, but I've listened to also a mock-up that you sent me, and the song is like right at the beginning of the mock-up, right? Yes, but it might not be <laughs> if you go to the park. So is that kind of like an Easter egg that people will have to find when they hit the right spot? And the uh... Yes, although it's a little obvious, I think, where it is, because I placed it where the water goes into the sewer. <laughs> so if you start there at the outflow, you'll hear it. But it felt interesting to think about how the waterway would go and it's not a street right you could you can choose where you want to interact with it so the the whole way that the app works is that um there are loops of different kinds and they get turned and off, turned on and off as you walk because the phone uses your geolocation data to trigger the loops and to change the volume and panning of the loops. So if you start at the outflow, you'll hear the song first. And if you don't start at the outflow, you might hear something else. <laughs> um, and as you walk, you can choose how fast you want to go. Um, if you want to stand and listen for a while, like some of the along the way there, if you look in the app, there are these circles that sort of show where extra special things happen, such as a song or an instrumental solo. So if you want, you can stand a while in those circles and, and listen, or you can keep going and you might not even hear the, the whole thing, but that's also fine. That, that's part of their unique experience that you can have. Hmm. 
how did it feel as a composer to give up the control of like what people would hear first or how long they would spend in a place or it wasn't it's interesting because you have to think about um it's sort of like it's game design really and you have these branching uh possibilities to think about well if they enter here and they go to the left what is that like or if they go to the right what is that like and so the the way that i thought about making it is these these sort of harmonic spheres that shift very very slightly from one to the next so the experience of going from one harmonic area to another if they're right next to each other is not such a big change but from the beginning to the middle is a huge change and then the middle back out again is a huge change but it should happen smoothly if someone is just walking yeah if you're walking, you probably won't even notice. Did you spend a lot of time walking around the... <laughs> yes, <laughs> I did. I did. And I made my partner, Drew, also walk with me. So so we did a bunch of beta testing before this app went live. Um, but of course, it's not as much as we would do if we were like a, a, a company or something <laughs> where you actually have a lot of beta testers. Um well, the glitchiness is is part of the art, you know. Yes. <laughs> it needs to be a little bit. There needs to be that that room for like indeterminacy, I guess. Yes. And did you work with someone to who was an actual developer to make that? Oh yeah, yeah. I would I have a very rudimentary knowledge of the Unity game engine, but only so that I can talk to people who actually know how to code in it. Um, I worked with Matthew Gill, who I had worked with um, at Tri Cities Opera. He did the virtual reality version of my opera, Miranda, in 2020, and. He is really, really talented. Like he did the coding for that piece all by himself. And that was a really ambitious project involving singers performing live in motion capture suits. Um, yeah, so he's he's really great. And so when, you know, when I got this commission and I was thinking about what I wanted to do, I immediately went to him to see if he might be available to work on this. Um, so this this version of the app is sort of the easy version with the audio. But the oh, I should mention there's one other thing in the app that is um, it was really tricky to pull off, but it it I think it's nice is that um, there is a historic map from 1856 that maps on top of the Google Maps view that you have. So if you want to scroll, you can use a slider to go back and forth between the present day Google Map and the historic map view. So you can get a sense of where, where the brook used to be. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's great because the, the, the you know, the it's so different now that you have the boundaries of this park, right? And then once you leave the park, you're on Broadway and the train is above. And all of a sudden, it's this very, very different feeling. But it wasn't different. Like the brook, the path of the brook flowed out of the bottom of where the park is and all the way over to 230th Street, which is part of this really busy Broadway area that's noisy, there's shopping, there's a Walmart, there's all of that, all of those things. Um, and so we think of them as being disconnected, like the park is the natural area and 
Broadway, the shopping district is the urban area, but it's the same. It's the same land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I used to live up in Inwood and I remember that there are such beautiful natural pockets in that area and then just such noisy, noisy human areas just right next door. It's a very, it's kind of a jarring place. Yeah, but it's 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 so interesting to think about how artificial it is also that, you know, we have created these boundaries that don't actually exist. And this is part of why we perceive these boundaries between ourselves and the natural world that aren't actually there is because because we have these things like like where the street starts versus where the dirt ends, you know, but it's still the land. The land is the same underneath it. Yeah, that's so beautiful, Kamala. Yeah, it's so true. And is that... Is that part of the reason why you have sort of more human sounds in the sound walk? Like, you know, I think there's sitar, right? And sound yeah, and then like percussion instruments alongside recordings of water and birds and stuff. Yeah, I think I just I thought I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, what is our relationship to this idea of nature and where do we fit? And we're part of it we are a part of nature. <laughs> I think that that's where we get stuck is in, again, the artificial boundary between where one thing ends and the other begins. Tell me about the water sounds in the app. It sounded like you used a microphone like under the water. I did, yeah. What was that recording process like? Um, so I used a hydrophone. Um, it's uh, This one is... Um, meant to be sensitive enough to capture whale sounds and other things. Of course, there are no whales in Van Cortlandt Park Lake, but uh, there are ducks. Um, so I started off doing these community recording walks over the summer of 2022, where people from the community were just invited to come and do some listening meditations and then uh, make recordings with their phones. And then they could also use my hydrophone to listen to what was going on in the lake and record that if they liked. So some of that is in the final piece. Um, but then a lot of it comes from recordings that I did up in the Owen D. Young Nature Reserve up by up in Cooperstown, New York, um, because I spent the whole summer of 2022 up as a, a resident artist at Glimmerglass. And the thing about the lake is that it's not really what the brook would have sounded like. When a brook is running through um, the land, it encounters rocks and there are other obstacles and that's what causes it to make sound. So I decided to go to a place where there was a brook running over rocks and record that. Yeah, so that there's there's a few different places that are that end up in the final recording. Is is the Van Cortlandt Park Lake is in there, but then also the Owen D. Young Nature Preserve, um, the stream in the backyard of a friend's house in Cherry Valley, New York, and a waterfall in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, there were a few months there where I was just sort of this crazy person where anytime I got near a body of water that had any movement in it at all, I would whip out the hydrophone and dump it in the water. 
That's great. I love a project that changes you like that, you know, that makes you see see the world differently a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Have you retained that habit at all? Do you now still uh, record water for fun? Record I do. But I've also, I also, um, I have a shotgun microphone now and uh, a nice uh, windscreen. And so I've been taking that with me on trips. And I'm really glad I did. I was in Belize last January and it was the last night that we were there and we were in this hotel in Belize city. Um, and all of a sudden hundreds of birds just landed on the telephone wire across from the hotel room. And they started like, it was the craziest thing I've ever heard. So I, of course I had to run out of the room and record it. Of course. Oh, any other any other like magical sound recording experiences? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, what's another recent one? Oh, when I so I was in I was in the Canary Islands over the summer, um, and there are these volcanic rock beaches, and the sound of the waves going through the tiny pebbles on these beaches is just really really nice. So that was another one that I'm glad I brought the microphone with me, even though it's a bit of a, it is a bit of a wacky move because it takes up space in your suitcase. How big is it? Um, it's not so big. The I have this tiny uh, portable recorder that's really great. Um, and then the, the microphone, this microphone is not a very long shotgun mic. Actually, I would like to get another one that's a, a bit better, but um it's actually the windscreen that takes up the most room. It's like a a giant fuzzy mitten. Right, right, right. Do you think you're going to, I know you said you used sound, found sound previously in your work, but do you see it playing an even larger role in your work in the future? I think so. I mean, what what's interesting is that the, the things that I'm working on have kind of gone off into two directions. So there's still the, the opera work that I'm doing, and that is squarely in the acoustic realm for the most part. Um, but then the work that I'm doing on my own, I'm I'm really really interested in more and more of these um, found sound field recording approaches, uh, voices of different kinds, like spoken as well as sung. One thing that's so cool about your artistic output is it seems like you really follow your interests even even when they seem like they might not be compatible always but yeah <laughs> make such like wonderful mixes um, of these like seemingly um yeah incompatible things really yeah yeah it's always it's always been I I feel like I my brain just goes in a lot of different directions <laughs> um and you also seem very comfortable with that like have you always been comfortable with that or because I know that some people struggle with feeling like there's one way that a composer should write or there's one way that a singer should be your sound or um have you ever struggled with those kinds of beliefs oh yeah yeah but I also you know I, I I've often wondered if it's partially because I'm a biracial person you know I like the the balancing of two things has always been part of my experience um there were, but there was, there was a period of time where I tried to do what I thought I should do. And I tried to be, you know, I, I tried to 
get the degree that I was supposed to. And then I tried to do the kind of singing that I was supposed to. Um, and I just, I don't know. I think I've, I've realized that I, I don't work that way. And so, you know, I could choose to try and adopt myself to the expectations that the world has and maybe you know maybe I'd have a better career I don't know but I like spending time in the forest and I like making my weirdo field recordings and so I think I'm happier than I would be I have an awesome career yeah <laughs> but I, I see what you mean yeah absolutely what's an upcoming project that you want our listeners to check out if anything what should we keep our eyes open for well um i i am excited that uh i have an album coming out on numa records in the winter so it'll be january or february we don't have the exact date yet but this is another one that has a lot of field recording and but this one is field recording and found sound and some more classical singing and a lot of improvisation. So it's kind of like a lot of things, a lot of the things that I do that are finally putting them together into one thing. So I'm excited about it. Amazing. That uh, What's it called? It's called Crescent. Crescent. Is that just a solo project? It's a, a duo project. It's me on vocals and electronics, and then with Brian Shankar Adler on percussion and tabla. Um, and Brian is in Bombay Ricky with me. Um, and Bombay Ricky actually has an album coming out this Friday, the 17th of November. Oh my God. Per amazing. What's that one called? <laughs> that one is what we called it Bombay Ricky because we were like we haven't ever called it an album Bombay Ricky I guess it's time all right I was listening to Bombay Ricky just before we got on zoom it's like just so fun to listen to like such just good satisfying fun music yeah yeah I I think sometimes we need a little fun <laughs> especially right now absolutely I think that is like one of the core functions of music. And if you don't have at least a little bit of fun in what you're doing, it's like, it's not, it's not all there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kamala. Oh, thank you. It's, it's nice to talk to you. I'll let you get to your evening activity. Okay. <laughs> Good to see you. you. Bye. This has been episode 39 of the Talk Editions podcast with Kamala Shankaram. To check out Kamala's recent and upcoming recordings and learn more about her work, click the links in our show notes. Also in our show notes is the link to support Talk's upcoming season. Check out our donor perks, including an exclusive sonic meditation created by Michelle Liu based on her recent work for Talk in a Forest, a tutorial by me titled How to Turn Any Commute into a Magical Forest Journey, Talk t-shirts and hats, instructive videos by Laura Cox on birding and Eric Wubbles on foraging, and original artwork by the brilliant Beatrice Modisette, and more. You can donate at talkensemble.com or via the link in our show notes. The music in this episode is excerpted from Kamala Shankaram's The Buried Brook. This episode was produced and edited by Charlotte Mundy. Thanks for listening.